This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. And we welcome to the show Janie Victoria Ward, who is a professor emerita in the Department of Education and Africana Studies at Simmons. She is the co-author, along with Tracy L. Robinson-Wood, who is a professor in the Department of Applied Psychology at Northeastern, and their new book is titled Sister Resisters, Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. And we, of course, as our regular listeners know, do a lot about education and cover any, many aspects of education on the show, and so I was particularly interested in having Professor Ward with us this morning. But then I was thinking that someone was going to say to me shortly after the show, Newman, wasn't that really weird for you having this conversation with this distinguished black professor about mentoring black women on campus? You're an old straight white guy. That had to be a bit awkward as a conversation. And I thought that given that I was actually musing about that, that I would ask you, Professor Ward, is this conversation between us this morning weird in that way or not? Well, good morning, Bill, and morning. thank you for the invitation. Um, it is certainly not weird for me, and it's not weird. it is not a weird conversation for me for a number of different reasons. One of the most important is that um, straight, older white men like you. Thank you for that. Are <laughs> are uh, the people who run a lot of predominantly white institutions, educational institutions. And therefore, um, you are the very population that um, I want to um, read the book and think about some of the ideas that we're putting out there. Secondly, we have to find ways um, to talk across race. There's a lot of um, talk, certainly since um, the death of George Floyd and the continuing um, demise of so many African-American men and women across the country, um, the rise of the Black Lives um, Movement and other social justice activities that are demanding that we figure out how to talk with each other about race and about racism. So I've been doing this for a while. Um, I'm committed to this. And um, I think that if we talk and learn to listen, uh, all of us, including straight, older, white men and women, uh, may come to uh, some mutual understanding. Well, let's spend another minute, if you're willing to, on, on this topic about how to talk about how to talk. And that is, I think that from the older, white, straight guy perspective, one one difficulty in the, having the conversation is that there's a bit of an eggshell, standing in an eggshell moment. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to be offensive. You don't want to uh, engage in a microaggression. You don't want to be wrong about this. And that makes the conversation and, and from someone who would consider themselves an ally. Um, and I think that that makes the conversation more difficult. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Without a doubt, it does. Um, and uh, in our book, what we are arguing is that we've got to get over it, right? Um, especially when it comes to mentoring young Black women. Women come into college 
they are looking for, um, of course, an academic education, but it's also a period in their lives um, in which they're doing a lot of identity exploration. They are thinking about career preparation. They are making strong and lasting relationships with students and hopefully with professors as well. And we've got to figure out a way in which um, young Black women can talk to the adult white, um, usually white, uh, professors, administrators, and staff members on campus because they are the people who are going to enhance that young woman's education and perhaps get her on the path that's really going to lead her to the kind of success that she is looking for. Um, so we have to get over the fragility. We have to get over the fear. Um, and we do that by talking. Right. Easier said than done. Although the book, of course, White Fragility, of course, leaves one, can leave one with the impression that uh, the author there says you got to have the talks. You have to have these conversations. They're difficult conversations. You need to have them. Um, but I think there are a lot of uh, white people who read the book and said they're a little paranoid about having the conversation or having these conversations after having read that book. Um, although that's a Yeah, story. no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. But um, but the way that we uh, get over it is that we understand that sometimes in those conversations, we hit those moments of discomfort. Um, we hit those moments of anxiety. We take a deep breath and then we keep moving on. Okay? Let, me ask, let me ask you this. You, you, we are speaking, we should know, with Janie Victoria Ward, who's the co-author of a new book, Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. You, as a professor of uh, education and Africana studies, um, have had the experience of working with uh, and being a mentor to, I take it, many uh, women of color, college students. And I'm wondering whether or not your experience is different, substantially different, from the mentor who is a, say, equally distinguished professor um, and has mentees on campuses, and how that experience is different not only for you and for the white professor, but for the student of color who is looking to the two of you for inspiration, guidance, and perhaps as a role model as well. So across my many years of teaching, um, what I've discovered, and certainly what Tracy, my co-author, has discovered as well, is that often it is the faculty of color um, who uh, uh, share the stories of students coming into the office, sitting down and talking about their lived experiences on campus. Sometimes they will share with us things that are going on in the classroom, things that are going on in the dormitories that they will not share with a, uh, a white professor or a white administrator. Um, and that has to do with levels of comfort. Um, that has to do with uh, feeling uh, nervous that a white person can't hear this um, or won't know what to do with this kind of information. And very often what happens is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of research about faculty of color um, being overburdened with all of this um, information that the students of color are bringing to them. 
still we persist um, and we try to we try to be mentors in the best way possible using our own personal knowledge of resistance by which i mean seeing and naming racism sexism and the other kinds of oppressions that might be out there in the air and helping students to resist it by navigating around it so that they can graduate in uh in the time period that they had hoped for and they have, have achieved the kind of education that they frankly have paid a whole lot of money for so that's the kind of mentoring that faculty of color are trying to do we believe there are white faculty members and administrators who can do much the same thing as well i mean as, as equally effectively um, I don't know about equally as equally effective, um, but certainly they can do better than what they are doing today. And one of the ways that they can do better is to put the black students, uh, and now we're talking about black women, to put her experience at the center, by which I mean that you you can't you can't talk about what's going on with black women without addressing gendered racism, right? There are certain kinds of situations that black women have to negotiate on campus, as well as when they graduate and they're out there in the world, um, you know, starting their professional life. If you can't talk about those things, then you can't be the kind of mentor that she needs. And when white women start, and white mentors, and we'll talk a moment about why I keep referring to white women, but when white mentors let down their guard and say, okay, let's talk about this, right? Let's figure out how to navigate gendered racism. Then avenues of success open up all over the place. We have seen that um, happen many times. Let's take one step back. In your book, which is titled Sister, or your book, which is titled Sister Resistors, the subtitle is Mentoring Black Women on Campus. I'd like to take this step back and ask you, what do you mean by mentoring? Mm -hmm. So um, mentoring traditionally um, has, has um, referred to uh, a power relationship in the sense that the mentor is the senior person who has all the information about uh, courses that you're supposed to take, um, how to build a career, uh, all of that information that the junior, the student needs in order to move through um, her path uh, towards success. That's the traditional mentoring relationship. The mentor is there to guide, to advise, to share um, the knowledge that he or she has with the person who presumably does not have that knowledge. We're arguing that the mentor relationship, when you are working cross-racially, includes so much more. For one thing, 
there's a shift in the balance. A lot of young black women come on to predominantly white institutions, uh, campuses, knowing a whole lot more about how race works in America than the white mentor knows. Why? Because she grew up as a black child, probably in a black family, perhaps in a black community, and she has had to think about race a whole lot more than white folks have. So already the knowledge levels have shifted, okay? The black student knows something that the white mentor has to yet learn. Let me ask you this, uh, and we should note again, we are speaking with Janie Victoria Ward, who is a professor emerita in the Department of Education and Africana Studies at Simmons University. Simmons, of course, as an undergraduate institution, is an all-women's institution still, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is, at the undergraduate level. Okay. So um, at the risk of asking an unfair question, um, the title of your book is Sister Resisters Mentoring Black Women on Campus. Is it a substantially different uh, experience or phenomenon to mentor black men on campus? Um, I think that some of the ideas that we are presenting um, are very similar and could work very well with young men. You see, at the heart of our model is this idea that where there is oppression, there is resistance, right? And therefore, and, and a lot of Black students come onto campus having understood and um, how important resistance is, and they have learned to respect resistance. Now, not everybody resists well, right? There is suboptimal, what we call suboptimal resistance, where people may come up with strategies of resistance um, that they think are going to work and maybe do work in the short term, but in the long term, they might create even greater problems that were unanticipated, right? So this idea of the importance of resistance can occur with Black men as well as Black women, right? We're also arguing it can occur with white women too, right? So the mentors, and I, and I want people to understand, the reason why I keep going back to white women is because very often on campus, it's white women who are in these um, positions. Positions Sometimes, of authority. Uh, these positions of authority, but also these positions of mentoring. Sometimes, um, uh, white women are assigned to the position. They might be in a department that gets a program and, um, you know, the dean comes in and says, we're going to have this new mentoring program and assigns faculty members to it. But sometimes um, faculty members volunteer and it's often women who volunteer for these kinds of roles because they really care. They want to make certain that these students graduate, right? So their heart is in the right place, but too often they don't really have the skills to effectively mentor cross-racially. And that's what the book is about. 
We're going to find out more about this on the other side of this short break. We'll continue our conversation with Jane Victoria Ward, co-author of Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. We'll be right back. It's my thing. This is Bill It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. Beer Heaven at Cooper's Corner in Florence with Beer Mike. Mountains Walking Brewery in Bozeman. This brewery was started by a guy who grew up in Taiwan. The name Mountains Walking comes from a 13th century Zen philosopher named Dogen. And he basically said something along the lines of, when you understand the walking of the mountains, you understand yourself. This is from their seasonal sweets series. And it's a sour ale with banana, maple syrup, cinnamon, and lactose. Huh, these beers are so weird and I love it. This one, I think it's got about 2,200 pounds of banana puree per batch. That's about how many bananas we buy a week. Super banana-y. Smells like fried plantains. Oh man, I like this. And then I smell the cinnamon too. This one I just want to contemplate. Part of that whole philosophy and, and what the brewery name is about is it's something to stop and think about. You hit the nail on the head. It's almost like a banana cream pie. Find your favorite beer and your next favorite beer at Cooper's Corner, Florence. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's local hero guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries on the corner in Northampton on the main Dragon Keen plus local burgie. Burgers and barbecue in Williamsburg. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Professor Janie Victoria Ward, who is the co-author of the new book, Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. During the break, we were talking about historically black colleges and universities uh, and comparing the experience there 
to experiences at traditionally white institutions. I picked on Yale um, because I think it's a pretty good example. Uh, but you said to me that you worry less about the Amherst colleges and the Harvard colleges uh, than you do about, for example, the large state universities where I, there are predominantly, perhaps overwhelmingly, uh, white uh, faculty and staff and student bodies. And I wondered if you would uh, expound on that for a bit for us, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I would add to that the smaller private predominantly white colleges of which there are, you know, thousands um, across the country. Um, the, let's start with the historically um, black colleges, because we know that the numbers of students who are applying to these schools has gone up. Um, in the last couple of years. Black students are looking for an academic environment that they feel will affirm their identity, will provide a curriculum for them that speaks to their needs, um, will help them to understand the past and set um, a clear path towards the, the future. And they think that they're going to get that in a historically Black institution. The students who go into um, predominantly white institutions may choose their schools for a host of different reasons. Maybe the curriculum, maybe um, uh, uh, the pre-professional work that um, is set forth in the curriculum. Maybe, and then they, maybe, and maybe other, maybe the location, maybe the cost. Or maybe. the location, absolutely. Um, and then they find themselves at these schools and these questions of identity, questions of curriculum, questions of career preparation are still very much alive and well, but they feel like there are fewer people that they can turn to for advice, right? And because of that, some of the young women run into all sorts of different barriers. So I'd like to know your perspective on those barriers, and I'd like you to connect the dots for us a bit, because I think more than a few white faculty would ask, look, I, I wonder if a black faculty member would simply would be more effective than I would be at mentoring this college student of color. And how, how do you respond to that? So the first thing that I would say is um, how important it is to know your students and then to know the experience that your students are having on campus. So as we talk about black women, the first thing we have to understand is there is no monolithic black woman out there, right? The black community is extraordinarily diverse, especially on college campuses. We are um, multi-ethnic. We come from lots of different nationalities. There could be African students, Caribbean students, um, African-American students and others. Um, we are diverse in terms of sexual orientation and gender. Um, we, and uh, also in terms of ability and disability. So to think that um, there is only one kind of black women's experience on campus is really limiting and, um, uh, and wrongheaded. That's number one. Um, and secondly, I think that it's really important 
for people to understand that black students enter college with certain strengths. And we have to recognize what those strengths are. We're so used to talking about black folks in this country as having um, uh, deficits, you know? Uh, they, they come from um, difficult families or they come from communities that are beset by violence or, you know, whatever the problems are. And we don't necessarily think about the students as coming in with something that would be really extraordinary extraordinarily important to appreciate. And that thing that I'm talking about here in this book is this um, belief in resistance and respect for resistance, right? Also, Black women come in um, with strong relational connections, and they make those connections with other Black students on campus. Black women know the power of getting together with other black women who are in a similar situation, helping each other out, sharing information, guiding each other. Black women are excellent peer mentors with each other, which is a great thing. But sometimes we need adults in there too. Well, which gets me to the uh, conclusion, sadly, the conclusion of our conversation, but something I would ask you to clarify for us which is that in your book, Sister Resistors, you talk about the sister resistor model. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you would spend a moment or a minute with us explaining what you mean by and what is that model. So what we mean by um, a model is that, uh, well, let me back up really quickly before we get to the model. Um, we think that when you're doing cross-racial um, uh, mentoring, a cross-racial mentoring practice demands that, in this case for women, that white women um, also understand and respect this idea of resistance. One of the best ways that they can do it is to be in touch with their own resistance, right? Understand what kinds of things in life have I had to push up against? What kinds of biases around gender have really, you know, set it off for me? You take that knowledge and you use that knowledge to help to guide a young black woman as she is coming up with resistance strategies. They are not the same. I am not equating white women's experiences with black women's experiences, but I am saying that white women can use their experiences to better understand what black women are thinking about and navigating. So the model has four steps. First one we call see it. And that means to be able to look at an environment and understand what's going on. Are there patterns of discrimination that are occurring that you need to pay attention to, right? The second, um, the second stage of the model is to name it. If indeed there are patterns of discrimination, is it racism? Is it sexism? Is it a combo of the two, right? Um, and if it is, you have to have the courage to be able to say that's what's happening. This professor is behaving in a way that could be racist. Now, it's also possible that it isn't racism. And it, that's really um, extraordinarily important for us to be able to discern, because you can't walk around seeing everything as racism. 
that is like, um, you know, waiting for a heart attack to happen, right? You just can't do it. The third stage is opposing it. As I said earlier, wherever there is oppression, there is resistance. If you find that something has to change, let's figure out how we're going to change it. Sometimes that opposition is um, uh, done in the collective. Students get together. They meet with the dean to talk about an incident on campus. But sometimes those changes occur in the individual herself. What do I need to do um, to be able to get through this, this um, situation better? And then the last stage is replenishing. And that is that um, you have to be able to do self-care. You have to be able to figure out how to um, make it so that you can fight the good fight another day. And there are a variety of ways in which we take care of ourselves so that we can continue to resist. Which are explicated in the book, Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus by Janie Victoria Ward and Tracy L. Robinson Wood. We have had the great pleasure of speaking with Professor Janie Victoria Ward this morning. Ward? I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your book. Thanks so very much. Thank you so much for having me. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The driver charged with hitting and killing city musician Charlie Braun last year as he rode his bike near Northampton High School will serve probation, perform 200 hours of community service, and lose her right to drive for 15 years after she pleaded guilty yesterday to motor vehicle homicide. The Gazette reports that 24-year-old Haley Kelly Charette of Williamsburg accepted a plea deal during an afternoon hearing in Northampton District Court. Additional civil charges of failing to stop for a stop sign and use of an electronic device while driving were dismissed as a condition of the deal. Governor Charlie Baker is joining President Biden in calling for a gas tax holiday. With inflation at the high rate of 8.6 percent, the governor is looking for ways to help the most financially vulnerable residents, including seniors, families, and renters. Governor Baker and Lieutenant Governor Polito said in a joint statement, we support passing legislation to suspend the gas tax in Massachusetts, as President Biden has called for. Thanks to a balanced budget combined with surplus tax revenues, there is more than enough funding available to suspend the gas tax, pass tax relief plans, and invest in Massachusetts' future. It's time to act and cut taxes for the people of Massachusetts. And a baby hawk dubbed Harold was freed from being tangled in netting yesterday. According to the Hadley Police Department, Officer Robotelli cut netting around a blueberry bush to untangle the baby hawk after residents called for help. The bird was able to escape without injury. A mix of sun and clouds for your Thursday with a chance of some showers by this afternoon. Highs in the low to mid 70s. Mostly cloudy tonight with lows in the low to mid 50s. Warmer tomorrow with temperatures near 80 and a mix of sun and clouds. There is a slight chance for a shower in the afternoon. The weekend looks dry and hot with highs near 90. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Oficina de Planificación y Desarrollo Económico de la Ciudad de Holyoke y la Comisión de Planificación del Pioneer Valley serán coanfitriones de una reunión pública este miércoles 22 de junio entre las 3.30 y 7.30 de la tarde en el Holyoke Senior Center. Habrán presentaciones duplicadas a las 4 y 6 de la tarde sobre el Plan de Turismo Histórico y Cultural de Holyoke. 
el nuevo sitio web Explore Holyoke y el calendario de la comunidad de la ciudad, así como el proyecto Ciudad de Historias de la Sala de Historia de la Biblioteca de Holyoke. En estas presentaciones se buscará la opinión del público para obtener información sobre cómo los residentes valoran los recursos históricos y culturales de la ciudad. Los comentarios se incorporarán al Plan de Turismo Histórico y Cultural de Holyoke, que se está creando como una enmienda al Plan Estratégico de Turismo de Holyoke recientemente completado. En otras informaciones, el Comité de la Cámara escuchó un testimonio escalofriante y lloroso el martes de que la incesante presión de Donald Trump para revocar las elecciones presidenciales de 2020 provocó amenazas generalizadas a los trabajadores electorales y los funcionarios locales que rechazaron las demandas del presidente derrotado, a pesar de los riesgos personales. El panel que investigó el ataque del 6 de enero de 2021 en el Capitolio de los Estados Unidos se centró en los esfuerzos de Trump para deshacer la victoria de Joe Biden de una manera más local apoyándose repetidamente en los funcionarios públicos en los estados claves del campo de batalla con propuestas impactantes para rechazar las boletas por completo o presentar electores alternativos para el escrutinio final en el Congreso. La presión de alto perfil descrita como potencialmente ilegal fue alimentada por las falsas afirmaciones de fraude electoral del presidente que, según el panel, se extendió peligrosamente en los estados y, en última instancia, condujo directamente a la insurrección mortal en el Capitolio. Yo soy Johan Rashid Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment with the Reverend this week, Carol Bull, who is the Reverend at the United Church of Ware, and Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel here in Northampton. We were talking during the break about the enormity and the importance of the January 6th hearings. At least that's how they feel today, and they certainly are in terms of the uh, evidence that is being disclosed and the information that is being shared across the country. Not that I think, frankly, uh, many uh, Donald Trump or for that matter, any Donald Trump supporters care that he was trying to usurp democracy and essentially impose a uh, Uh, coup d'etat on the United States government. But these these hearings are extremely important, and I'm wondering how you experience and share and process this information and, the, and this, the, the, this uh, historical event uh, with your congregations. Uh, let me start with you, if I might, uh, Reverend Carol Bull. Yes, so... Um Yeah, it's been quite just a personal experience to, to watch those hearings, and particularly this week with uh, Lady Ruby and Shay's testimony about how painful and horrific, uh, you know, people coming to their house and wanting to make citizens arrests and everything, um, you know, and I just kept thinking maybe we need to do a Lady Ruby t-shirt campaign where... Uh, you know, we, of course, we'd have to see if she would ever give permission for that. But my Lord, uh, they need reparations for that. I mean, it's, it's the worst. It was the worst thing I'd heard for some time now in terms of those hearings. Um, and then how to share them with the congregation. I have reached out to an organization this week called Braver Angels. I don't know if you're familiar with it, whether you've ever had them on your show they bring together the right and the left in the uh to um get past 
people's positions and views and try to create some common ground. So they have gotten back to me and I'm hoping that we can have some sort of event like that centered at our church. I know they've had them in Northampton at Look Park. So I've read about it in the Gazette a couple times. So that was my reaction was as a person who's been a student of nonviolence my whole life, um, you know, how can we ratchet down the violence that's going on? And, and I think that may be one way in. So uh, that's, that's what I've done so far. I would like to ask you, if I might, uh, Reverend Carol Bull, about that issue of anger, because uh, what is depicted in those images of what happened on January 6th is fury, outrage by these Trump supporters that they don't get to run the country and somehow they're being displaced. You know, Jews will not replace us. Uh, blacks will not replace us. Um, and they're furious. My, res my response to that is it makes me furious, outraged. And yeah. I, um, I, I am uh, greatly admire those of you who can somehow see a way to uh, bridge bridge those, the, those, those opposites, but I, I don't feel it. And I, and I really don't really, I don't really don't believe it's possible. And I'd appreciate your telling me why I'm wrong. Wow. Well, thanks for, I, thanks for such a beautiful, honest share, Bill. That's really great. Um, and I, I just want to say I can be as furious as the next person and as rageful as the next person. I don't, I'm not holier than thou there. You know, we're all, we're human beings. And I feel like the feelings are like the keys on a piano. And throughout the course of your life, we're going to be hopefully playing each key and learning what that's about. And also not just always on the same key, right? So, um, you know, I work with my congregation on getting good exercise, you know, all that self-care kinds of things, uh, you know, outside help, th therapy, whatever you need, get, get as much support as you can so that you're not stuck in that rut of rage. Because rage, I think, is really not good for our systems. Um, and I think sometimes the media hypes things up, you know, like we don't just have a thunderstorm anymore. It's, you know, they make, they have more language to overlay that. So, um, so I would just say thank you for bringing that up. And, and none of us are beyond rage, and, but we do. We, I do feel we're responsible for figuring out what's going on in us when we have that rage. And underneath the rage often is a lot of fear, fear of being wiped out, fear of other people, um, you know, taking over who we don't agree with, et cetera, et cetera. People coming to our door and making citizens arrests. I mean, all those things are scary things to hear about. Um, so, you know, I don't have, I don't have an answer for your question, but I do think it, each individual with help and support from their communities can become more calm. And in fact, this book, which I just wanted to talk about for a minute, Journey by Tim Snyder, um, there We are. This is a graphic edition, which is wonderful. It's got lots with all the main points in it. And in there, he talks about uh, one of the strategies is to establish a private life. You know, none of us can be only political all the time. We have to have things that bring us joy and renew us. 
Um, and another one that he has in there is um, take responsibility for the face of the world. You know, when the world is shifting and it's looking as it is now, right? Um, take responsibility for your, how you can, what small thing are you able to do? Because as, as one of my mentors said, the Reverend James Lawson, um, we can't do everything and no one faith community can do everything. So what is it your, what is your community's uh, small piece that you are going to be able to do and do well? Justin, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, thank you, Carol. Thank you for that rich series of insights. And I love what you say about um, anger as the, as the keyboard. Um, and um, so I, when, when you say anger, what do we do with that? I, I think of two things. I think of, on the one hand, the very human experience mm -hmm. that having that be such a central focus of our lives can really be debilitating. Um, it can be a thought intrusion. It can take over who we are. Um, and yet, at the same time, I think of what Abraham Joshua Heschel said, that righteous anger is an animating, yes. is an animating force that awakens us to our deepest moral imperatives. Um. So, so I, I want to embrace that righteous anger. Yes lose sight of it and not paste it over with easy recipes or easy blame or outrage. Um, so that being said, I, I have a few thoughts, uh, one practical and a couple more exploratory. You know, this is a time in the synagogue calendar where our, where um, things quiet down, people go away. I take time off. I take a significant time, amount of time off. And it's a time to really think about the next year. And something that uh, the, the pit of my anger and fear uh, in response to the January 6th hearings is to see and bear witness to the ways in which Trump's tactics and the tactics of those around him are, you know, resemble Gestapo tactics, that you have the modern, the contemporary equivalent of brown shirts uh, harassing people at their homes who are simply doing their job uh, and upholding democracy. And, and that's what I find really frightening. It's not so much that, you know, I'm under no illusion that if we get rid of Donald Trump, which we, you know, we uh, elected him out of office, that there isn't someone to take this place. But what I'm more deeply concerned is about what he has and continues uh, to normalize and unleash in our country. It didn't start with Donald Trump and it's not going to end with Donald Trump. It's been building for decades and has reached a real zenith right now or a nadir. Um, but I, I do think that there are things we can and, and should do. Uh, in the community, one thing that this has awakened my need for, for a number of us, uh, is a need for ongoing education about the Shoah, about the Holocaust and its implications for everyone. And, um, and it's not just a matter of calling attention to Jewish suffering in the Holocaust, but to the historical dynamics, to the personal stories that shed light on the history, to the stories of resilience and recovery, and to the dynamics of genocide uh, across the world that uh, the Holocaust unleashed. Um, genocide did not begin with the Holocaust, but it reached uh, proportions 
and sophistication that hadn't been seen before. Um, so, um, so we have a group of people who are thinking of ways to, um, to move forward on that throughout the year. Uh, but summer is a time for me to uh, detach and connect with sources that just deepen my understanding, challenge me, and I go into literature and I go into big things to read that I can spend a lot of time on. Which, so we, which, me, we, which we are going to speak about on the other side of this break where we continue the Reverend and the Rabbi with the Reverend Carol Bull and Rabbi Justin David right after this. This is the truth of where we've been. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And it's taken the words here now to take... When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So we have a system where folks in rich countries are getting a higher quality of care, higher quality vaccines. And when we, we have technology that we could produce and we could produce more of it to make sure that everyone gets the best chance to um, beat this pandemic. And we're not doing that because of monopoly rights um, that Moderna and Pfizer are choosing to maintain. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build SolarWrite and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Come on over to the co-op. Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President, Commercial Lending at the Greenfield Cooperative Bank and Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our experienced local commercial lenders are here for you and your business. Hi, I'm Maura Guzik, Vice President and Commercial Loan Officer. Did you know GCB is a SBA preferred lender? And unlike other banks, each of our team members has individual lending authority for fast local decisions. And I'm Adam Baker, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're here to help your business grow with commercial loans and lines of credit. You can reach any of our experienced commercial loan officers by phone or at bestlocalbank.com. We'd be happy to meet with you at your business or at any of our Franklin and Hampshire County locations. Come on over to the co-op. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000.
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our Reverend and the Rabbi segment with the Reverend Carol Bull from the United Church of Ware and Rabbi Justin David from Congregation B'nai Israel here in Northampton. We were talking before the break about reflections and using time in summer to grapple with some really big questions and or just take some time to replenish our souls. Let me start with you, Reverend Carol Bull. What are you going to be reading? Well, um, I did mention this before, I think, but it's called On Tyranny. There's a graphic edition and a small edition. They do, Broadside uh, has, has them in Northampton, um, by Timothy Snyder, 20th, 20th century, uh, Lessons from the 20th Century. And, uh, and there's a wonderful, wonderful good things, but I, it definitely has education in it, Rabbi. And you were talking about the ongoing education you want to do with your, uh, with your community uh, around the Shoah. And um, in terms, I just wanted to say, I've been involved with Haydenville Congregational Church for a while, and I'm no longer there, but I do participate. And we've been having a weekly group for the last two years. We did nine months on the history of slavery. Then we did a 15 weeks on Asian Americans. Then we did a bunch of weeks on indigenous culture, and now we're on Latinos. So we're learning the history that none of us were ever taught. And it, while it's shocking and difficult to hear, it's so important, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. So especially um, in community, doing education is a wonderful thing. Rabbi? So I just picked up The Power Broker by Robert Caro, which is a 1,000-page tome about how Robert Moses essentially built New York. And, and um, embedded in that analysis and that history is a critique of everything building up New York unleashed in terms of economic, economic inequality and displacement and racism. And we shouldn't forget that in that, uh, in that story uh, is the rise, of, rise and fortunes of the Trump family. So my hope is that reading that book will, will illuminate my understanding. Um, but I also take time to look at um, great authors who take me deep into society and the human condition. So for me, that's Kafka, that's Dostoevsky, that's Tolstoy, that's Jorge Luis Borges. Um, it's also Philip K. Dick and Octavia Butler. And I love all of them. And uh, uh, you only get you only get five weeks here, Rabbi. You, you don't get to take the, this is not a sabbatical for the rest of your life. Come on, you we're counting on you yeah, to come but back. Like a kid who takes out all all of his toys and leaves them around the floor. That's what I do with my books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'd like to uh, just add one more book. Uh, just came out by the Reverend James Lawson, who was the trainer in the civil rights movement of uh, you know lots of people and uh, worked with ML King Jr. etc. It's called Revolutionary Non. Violence. You can order it through again through Broadside. I'm putting in a plug for our local independent store, um, but it it looks like it's going to be fabulous. He co-authored it with two other people. He's in his 90s now, so he co-authored it with two others, and I'm really looking forward to reading that as well. While we were discussing books during the break, I mentioned the book that I had started, have not had a chance to finish, but I'm just engrossing. It's not a new book. It's called A Problem from Hell. America and the Age of Genocide by Samantha Power. And you, Rabbi, said you read it, couldn't put it down. It's, it's so deeply disturbing, and it's just written in such a gripping way and such a frightening, and, well, maybe you want to comment on for a half a minute. 
Yes, I, she does a masterful job of tracing the history of genocide in the 20th century and how we come to understand genocide. It also leaves us with some troubling questions because her claim is that the best way to intervene in genocide is um, mili proactive military intervention. Um, that that should give us pause. Um, you know, maybe there are times when that's right, but but it also unleashes um, uh, unintentional consequences, so or unforeseen consequences. So it's it's a brilliant history, uh, and on the policy end of it, um, there's a lot to debate. Reverend Carol Bull, ten seconds. Can you give us a nice light novel we might you read? Well, I'm, I'm reading Louise Penny's uh, books because I've never read them. Everyone I know reads them, and she has 17 and another one coming out this fall, and I'm on number five. Yeah. So it's very fun. It takes my brain away. It channels my rage. Helps us. And All Creatures Great and Small by James Harriet. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Rabbi, for that. In honor of the Westminster Dog Show yesterday. Ah, oh, lovely. <laughs> Rabbi Justin David, Reverend Carol Bull, thank you so very, very much. Thank you. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community. The to only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley, WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10.